thing that I find interesting about these two metaphors is that both metaphors use the word removed. The bent towards sinning is removed and the root of sin is removed, but they're using the word removed in two very different ways. And so I have heard people uh, reject, say, eradication language uh, simply because that language is not found in Scripture. Well, the concept is... You're listening to the Holy Joys Podcast, co-hosted by Jonathan Arnold and Dr. David Fry. Visit us at holyjoys.org and stay tuned for weekly discussions of theology and ministry practice, all for a holy, happy church. We're going to dive into some holiness terminology here in a moment, especially related to doctrine of entire sanctification. Uh, But we are just a few days away from the discipleship conference at your church, and I'm excited to attend there for the first time and to see what you do. Uh, Sit in on the sessions, get to hear Dr. Graham and uh, others speak. So I thought maybe you could just share a little bit about that. Sure, sure. And we're looking forward to having you and your wife here. And of course, Dr. Andrew Graham uh, will have some other speakers as well. Uh, This is our sixth annual discipleship conference. And uh, we actually started it, uh, obviously, six years ago, but we started it in order for us to have sort of a reorientation, an annual reorientation for a small group leadership and discipleship. So uh, it was pretty much an in-house thing, and it has grown in a few years ago, probably about three years ago, uh, we began opening it up to anyone that was interested, even within their church. So first three years, it was only by invitation. It was only our small group leaders, our disciples. Uh, it wasn't even opened up to the whole congregation. Um, now it is, and every year it's gained more interest. And uh, so, yeah, very excited about this year. And uh, Dr. Graham will be speaking on uh, a Christ-like response to abuse in and outside of the church. I uh, look forward to that, and we have people uh, who will be driving in, even from our state, uh, to to participate in in those sessions. And then the uh, main part of the discipleship conference, we have a plenary speaker who will just speak, give a presentation, and then all the other sessions are workshops. And so the idea, and it varies from workshop to workshop, but the idea is for it to be very interactive, hands-on. We will have role-playing, we'll have um, uh, activities that people will uh, engage in in order to uh, really have, try to try to create real life scenarios uh, so that we can practice, now, for instance, listening. We always have a session on listening, how to be a good listener uh, if you're a discipler. So uh, yeah, I certainly want to extend the invitation. We have never advertised I've never had brochures made. I've never, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the first year I've ever even put anything on Facebook about it uh, or any social media. So um, maybe we will um, raise the the bar for on marketing. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I'm not so concerned about how many we have as much as the impact on the ones who are here. So um, if anyone who is interested in, a local church uh, ministry and discipleship. And, and really, honestly, it's a discipleship conference, but it has broadened up a little bit to, to uh, well, quite a bit from just small group discipleship and even one-on-one discipleship. And now it's really about just church health, people being, uh, being the church and uh, learning how to just be uh, good Christians within their own local congregation in order f- mm-hmm. to raise uh, the church health. So, uh, yeah, very excited about this yeah. year, and uh, in the future we may have a partnership with Holy Joys, um, and uh, we'll see how things go this year. And by the time this is probably published, we'll have a good idea of what the title of it will be next year. Yeah, I think what I find exciting about what you're doing is that we spent a lot of time, you know, on the podcast and articles and uh, off, you know, off-air discussions, kind of uh, developing our theological vision of ministry. But what 
what you're doing is bringing people together to actually ask the question, like, how do we do this? And what does this look like? How do ordinary lay people get involved in this? And the nuts and bolts, kind of like best practices for actually executing this theological vision. And I think it's so important. Um, you know, we, we hear a lot about the need to be practical. And uh, I think too often we jump to practice before we have a well, well orb theology. But, you know, clearly you have a very developed theological vision of ministry that's continuing to develop. I, I know any good thinker is continuing to develop and refine that vision. But um, this, this is unique, I think, in that what you're doing really um, is about application of a theological vision, not just we got to be practical because we got to be practical and give them some practical tips to get them, you know, fired up to get go out and do the same thing they've always done. But there's really some some meat behind this, some real substance behind it, and I think that's unique and uh, really exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So we have, uh, yeah, a variety of speakers from year to year, and uh, we want each speaker to come in and speak, you know, to their strength. And we've had very good response. So, uh, yeah, very exciting. And uh, this is, I don't think there's really anything else like this um, that is free. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the conferences, we don't charge anything for it. Uh, you just have to take care of your own room and board for the most part. Uh, but we do have even places uh, for that if people want to drive in. So, uh, yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, it's usually, right now, It's it's always been in the, uh, the last weekend, one of the last weekends of August, we try to schedule it to where school has already started and been in session for a week or two. And then, um, and then we're kind of the first thing in the fall <clears throat> or late summer, whatever you call it. Uh, so it's, the timing has worked out well for us and has actually worked out because we've had some Bible uh, school professors come and participate in the past. And actually works out well for them because it's kind of before their busy part. It's a weekend right now. It's a weekend. I don't know if mm-hmm. it always will be, uh, but uh, you know they don't have to miss classes because it starts on Friday night and goes all day Saturday. So uh, maybe that will work for, especially for those in this area, uh, Central Indiana. It's right here in Frankfurt. So uh, you know we're just a few hours drive from a lot of places. So we certainly invite people. Looking forward to being there. Let's jump into this uh, kind of sticky conversation on holiness terminology and uh, how we use the terms that we use. Uh, this is something that uh, I have a lot of interest in, um, terminology in general. I just uh, wrote an article, will be released soon, on a few terms we use uh, related to the human response to grace and uh, I think it's it's important that we think deeply about the words that we use. Um, and sometimes people get the idea or get the impression that what we're doing is we are being too, um, we're splitting hairs and we're being too, um, we're thinking too deeply about or too hard about it and, and uh, overthinking it maybe. But it's really the opposite of that for me. My desire is to do the thinking up front because I don't have the time and it's not practical to be defining my terms every time that I use them. So what I want to do is I want to do spend the time in the study thinking through the words that I'm already using or, or are already in currency, making sure I understand how I use them so that when I get up in the pulpit, I can, uh, I can naturally and instinctively avoid waves of speaking that lend themselves to misconceptions or feed into existing misconceptions. So sometimes a good term or a term that has potential to be helpful is a term that I'll avoid because it's been misused so much that it would take me too much time to, to explain it. And so I'm looking for a different term, a different word that carries the same meaning or substance. Defining your terms is, is one of the, the first steps in good thinking and how you're using those terms. So what we want to do is, is try to help contribute to the much needed clarity on the doctrine of holiness, especially entire sanctification, by just kind of starting out 
by with a little discussion about terms. We aren't here to say use this term or don't use this term necessarily, but really to talk through and think through together. Here's how we're thinking about these terms. Uh, here's maybe some things that we're concerned about or we would avoid, and uh, hopefully it'll be profitable to us and to our listeners. Yeah, we often forget in communication that every single word carries meaning. And you know, meaning is conveyed when we put words together. Uh, but as, as a preacher, teacher, it's very easy to uh, gravitate towards certain language without a nuance or without really recognizing the, uh, the imbalance of our language. So we may use a word that is even used in scripture uh, concerning the doctor of holiness that um, that is one aspect of what it means to be holy. And when we hammer away at with one word or one concept, uh, it, it can become distorted. It can create a distortion of what a life of holiness uh, really is. And so I think as we go through you know, a list of words uh, today, we'll try to talk at least about you know, a few of them. Uh, I think that would become clear as to why we need this balance. And I think this first came to my recognition, and we should have uh, this person I'm getting ready to mention on here sometime to talk about this, actually. Uh, but this first came to my recognition uh, back in 2006, five, somewhere in there, when Chris Bounds uh, came down to Mississippi where we were uh, for a week or two and taught a class on, uh, on Wesleyan theology actually. And, uh, and I remember him, excuse me, I remember him uh, stating that uh, you have this substance metaphor and you have the, the filling metaphor, and then you have the language of corruption. And those are, those are three very differently nuanced ways of coming to the conversation of, of holiness. And that, that got my mind to thinking through more, trying to think more thoroughly through how I present a, a doctrine of holiness. And if I tend towards one or more of those metaphors uh, which are useful and biblical, uh, but are uh, can be lead to an imbalance and confusion. When it becomes imbalanced, it becomes confused, and that's what we need to avoid. So, hopefully, in this uh, episode, uh, we will be able to leave people uh, th- recognizing that when someone or if they if they hear the doctrine of holiness and they tend to hear one metaphor just over and over and over, it just seems to be. Uh, like beating a dead horse, um, if they can categorize that for what it is, maybe that will help them to to think through uh, the mm-hmm. doctrine of holiness and not reject something only because one aspect has been so emphasized mm-hmm. to the detriment of other aspects. Mm-hmm. So let me just throw out an example here. This is one that I found particularly helpful for um, helping people to become aware of the way in which these metaphors are used. So uh, two common metaphors that I hear is one, the bent towards sinning is removed. And secondly, the root of sin is removed. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I find interesting about these two metaphors is that both metaphors use the word removed. The bent towards sinning is removed and the root of sin is removed, but they're using the word removed in two very different ways. So in the first metaphor, uh, the bent towards sinning is removed. If you think about it like uh, an iron bar that gets bent, or I've heard someone using a better illustration, I think of a tree that's been, that's been bent in the wind uh, by certain forces have bent it a certain direction. 
And this, of course, um, you know, is is uh, helpful because it it really picks up on Luther's understanding of inherited depravity, original sin, which is human nature curved or right. bent in on itself. Um, so that bent is removed. Well, what does it mean to remove the bend in a tree or in an iron bar? Well, you rebend it. Right, mm-hmm. you're doing something to the, the the thing that's been bent itself. The tree itself is rebent. The iron bar itself is rebent. In the second metaphor, which is very very different, the root of sin is removed. Here, inherited depravity or original sin is not depicted as a condition of the thing itself, the substance itself, but as a foreign, separate thing that's been added. And is causing certain symptoms or carnal traits, as we hear. And that thing needs to be taken out substantially so that it's no longer there. And so removed here does not mean corrected, but removed means literally substantially taken out. And here's the thing about the second metaphor, I think. I think that the, the, the emphasis of that metaphor ought to be on the word root, because I think the way that people are you know, have used it helpfully is to make the observation that if you are still curved in on yourself, fundamentally curved in on yourself, that is going to explain certain behaviors and attitudes in your life or contribute to explaining them. And so it's something beneath the surface, as it were, that explains certain things that we might be seeing above the surface. So the idea is that let God do something beneath the surface in your nature, curved in on itself, so that those issues are are dealt with. And that, that curved in on yourself, that stubborn self-centeredness that causes so many problems reminds me a lot of a root that when you try to weed your garden just won't come out. And if you don't deal with it, the same symptoms are going to keep coming up. So the word root here is the emphasis of the metaphor, but most people don't hear that. Most people hear the word removed and it's been already been qualified. What kind of removal this is by the word root. It's a substantial removal. And so they start thinking, well, you know, inherited depravity is this thing within me that I've got to get taken out. And then, if it's taken out, how could you ever have yeah. any weeds yeah. above the surface ever again? Yeah. And if you do, you must not have been entirely sanctified. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I think that's really helpful to distinguish between the two meanings are removed. And so, so let me let me say this, I can just interject this, that some people come to the doctrine of holiness with a really good question. And the question is, if it's so important, why is it so complicated and hard to understand? And what I, what I want to say at this point is to say, well, um, it is important. Uh, it's, it's very, very important doctrine of holiness and, and you know, God's whole, God is holy and he expects holiness of us. That's all through scripture. Uh, no argument from any Christian tradition on that matter. Uh, there is no sin that will enter heaven. Uh, again, no argument from any Christian tradition ever on that point. So there's a consensus on that point. So clearly, it's, it is core to Christian belief. But that in itself doesn't mean it's not going to be complicated or that's going to be easily understood because there is a striving after holiness that we uh, we must pursue, it's pursuing God. We are pursuing God. We are pursuing godliness. And so, yeah, that gets complicated sometimes. With that said, our use of language, including words like removed, which can be equivocal, it can be ambiguous because we're not clear on what is meant by that. Uh, it's very, very easy then to get into complications that are really not necessary. And uh, so I think uh, the, like that explanation that you gave just now, distinguishing how the word removed is used, points out that it has been used with great equivocation, without clear definition. And the the uh, it's not difficult to understand the difference between removing the bend in an iron bar or a tree and removing the a a root it's not difficult to understand 
uh, and yet we people latch on uh, often to the substance of the second one and uh, and then run with that and that causes a lot of confusion yeah you know I, I've shared multiple times <clears throat> kind of my like basic conversion story um, but I keep coming back to how I read the Bible uh, read a little Wesley, ended up at a Wesleyan church, heard about entire sanctification, was totally confused by the different things that I heard, went to somebody and said, you know, can you explain to me this entire sanctification thing? What is it? What, you know, what's going on? And they drew a picture of a human person with their heart. And they said, this is how God created them. They were pure. Their heart had nothing bad in it. And then Adam sinned and he, and they he his his uh his nature got this carnal added in his carnal nature and so he drew a black dot inside the heart and he said you know this is the reason why we sin now cuz we're all born with this entire sanctification is when god takes this out he removes it so they drew an arrow that now this is taken out and i walked away thinking okay well then if that's taken out then that's the source of sin how could someone sin? I mean, very simple, but that's where mm-hmm. I think most people's understanding is. And it really does come back to, to taking these substance metaphors and, and viewing them very literally, very scientific. It's very, and it's very normal. And because preachers don't explain them or how they're using right. them, it's very understandable. It's especially very understandable. And this is a point that I think you've made. It's very, very important. We live in a time when we we are not used to using our imagination we are living in a very scientific culture which thinks about expects very clear explanations of how things actually work the mechanism of things and so using these kinds of metaphors without explanation is especially harmful to us maybe more so than in previous generations and i think it explains why the confusion is only multiple yeah right right because we we have lost the sort of imagination that understands uh, how story and pictures function and perform uh, the performance of Jesus t- saying, you know, in a parable that, you know, if the, you know, speaking of the root of a tree, right. Or, or Paul picks up on the, the root metaphor and uh, you know, that's used throughout the new Testament. But if we're not, understanding how story and parable function, how metaphor functions, and we apply that to a sort of modern scientific uh, criteria, then it's, it's going to sound like what you just described. There is something substantially removed, and that something is what is the cause of all sin. So if the cause of sin is removed, how then can anything in my life be called sin since the cause is removed? And so I think since we're on removal language, um, let's uh, let's go ahead and mention some of the other words that fit into this realm of, of language idea and then talk about what is not removed. What do we, what do, what is, uh, if it's not substance, uh, then what's that leave us with, and what's uh, what do we say? What do we not say? Uh, so I know you've yeah. you've talked a little bit about cleansing language as well. We've talked about that. Yeah, maybe before we we move there, just a, a point related to that. Um, one of the hottest, uh, you know, hot, most hotly controversial terms is eradication, and I think we need to realize that eradication simply means. Uh, the complete removal of something. So those who are emphasizing eradication language are really just doubling down on the removal language and emphasizing it substantiality. Substantiality. I don't know if that's yes. the right word, but but they're but that's really what they're doing. So I am not like inherently opposed to removal right. language, right. even in, even with even within the substantial sense. Right, I'm not opposed to saying the root of sin is removed. If you explain what you mean by that, therefore I'm not inherently opposed to eradication language either. 
But I will say that most preachers that I've heard used it, use it are using it in exactly the wrong way. They're emphasizing the substantiality of it. And that's, that's exactly what it's not supposed to do, right? So I don't think, and I think it's very difficult to just simply say, well, I don't, I'm against eradication language, period. Well, if you're against eradication language, then you're probably against any substance metaphor. And you might find yourself struggling with some of the Bible's own metaphors, which are substantial, yeah, right? So it's not, it's not, yeah, so it's not, the problem isn't with the fact that it's a substance metaphor. It's how it's used and, and it's not explained. And I honestly think that most people I've talked to in the pew have never actually considered that the, this carnal nature that they hear about or this sinful nature that they hear about is not actually something that's taken out or removed. It's not something that was added in the fall, but it's actually a condition of their own nature. And what God is working with is them, their body, their soul, their spirit, their, you know, their mind, their heart. God's doing something to, to them. And uh, eradication language, especially right now with, with a lack of clarity, uh, I do think has caused a lot of harm because of the way it's been. Yeah. So let, let me, while we're on that, let me just draw our attention to Romans 7, for instance, to give our listeners a, I think, a pretty clear uh, understanding of how substance, the substance metaphor is used, in this case, by Paul in Romans 7. So I'm just jumping in here in verse 9. He says, uh, when the commandment came, sin, in the singular, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So sin is like an actor here. So Paul continues in Romans 7. He says, for I know that nothing dwells in me that is my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry out for I do not, I do not the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So the substance metaphor carries this idea of control as well. You couple those ideas together. It's a powerful word picture, very powerful word picture, mm-hmm. uh, but it can also do tremendous harm if it's not understood for what it is. And so I have heard people uh, reject, say, eradication language uh, simply because that language is not found in Scripture. Well, the concept is, and so this gets down to what we've talked about many times, and that is what counts as biblical. And uh, it's not appropriate to say, well, I don't use that because it's not biblical. And by that, we mean mm-hmm. it's not that that very word is not found in Scripture. Well, that's an extremely narrow uh, uh, understanding or definition of what counts as biblical. You'd have to reject the Trinity on that basis too. Uh, so let's just reject that and, and make it clear that, uh, th- this is a metaphor that is used in scripture and the language that we use, some of which is not found in scripture, uh, ought to be helpful, not a hindrance. And so it's important for us to understand, uh, the proper use One thing that is unique about um, this particular metaphor in Romans 7 is that sin is not just viewed as an impersonal substance, but as a a person, right? Like a a personality, as you put it. And one of the things that I I do think is is helpful to be aware of – and you just, so you just mentioned the Trinity. So let me give you a, a, a related example. Trinitarian metaphors are a nightmare, right? The way that Trinitarian metaphors are used. But um, uh, while I avoid almost all Trinitarian metaphors, uh, there's a few in the great tradition, like Irenaeus's metaphor that the that the Son and the Spirit are the two hands of the Father. And the reason why that metaphor works is because it's so obviously not literal. It's so obvious that the son and the spirit are not the literal two hands. And so it's very clear to anyone, even an ordinary person, how that's being used. It's being used to emphasize the inseparability of the operations of God. You know, the father does everything through the son and the spirit. He he never does anything without his two hands. In a similar way, we need to be aware that the metaphors we use, depending on the level of, of, depending on how obvious 
the meaning of that metaphor is, is going to depend on how much clarification we need to give. So Paul's metaphor in Romans 7, I don't, I don't think I've, I've ever read that or, or heard anybody read that who actually considered or, or walked away thinking about sin as a person or a personality within them, you know, that needs to be killed. And so th- that metaphor, although you're right in the fact that it's similar and in, in it's, in it's this kind of viewing sin substantially, it's giving a word picture. I do think in some ways that's even let in, in need of less clarification in the meta, the scriptural metaphor than something like eradication or the root of sin being removed, because it's not as obvious to me on the surface that, that, that is not making a metaphysical statement about the, the, what's actually happening in the human yeah, that, nature. Uh, yeah, sense? yeah, I do. That, that's, that's very interesting because I would like to hear from our hearers because my experience has been that that right there, as well as old man language, has been coupled with uh, eradication language. So that it is almost as if you have to be emptied of your personality you have to like your person. There, there are certain aspects of your personality that need to be substantially removed in order for there to be evidence of a a a deeper life, a deeper work of sanctification called entire sanctification. So I think that has there's been a lot of coupling of those ideas into a complex uh, theology of holiness that I think is is very erratic. Interesting. I've not been around the block as long as you used to hear how the, you know, those things are actually used, but uh, yeah, that's very interesting. So you mentioned cleansing or purification language, and uh, we're talking here about substance metaphors. And I think it's, it's important to note that this itself is another substance metaphor. Um, And I I talked to somebody recently who who was making some, some very helpful points about this, but I think um, seem to think that cleansing and purification language was like in a totally different category than eradication language. Um, but when something is purified, the contaminants are removed from it. So if I purify water, I remove the contaminants with a filter. Um, if I cleanse my flesh in a, I get a shower and I cleanse my flesh, I wash away the sweat and the dirt. So in both of these, whether it's contaminants being removed or, you know, sweat and dirt being washed away. It's a substance. Purification mm-hmm. cleansing is a substance language. Mm-hmm. And this is clearly another biblical metaphor. So again, scripture uses um, uses cleansing and, and purification language. Scripture uses substantial metaphors. But how do you think that this is different than like uh, something like eradication and, uh, you know, maybe uh, has potential to be a little bit more helpful? If you do. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so your question is, how does the purification language, how does it differ from, say, uh, just the other removal or eradication uh, language? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because it is more pervasive in scripture and in the traditions. Yeah. And yeah. I'm wondering, you know, what, what are the strengths, the weaknesses of this. Right, right. Yeah, I mean I I first of all I agree that I think it it fits squarely within this the same realm. So I don't think there's a lot of difference. Uh, I'm not sure there is any essential difference between our purification language and um other words that we use within this this uh domain of substance metaphor. Um I, I yeah, I've always kind of just placed them in the same bucket. Um, I, I think honestly, I think the biggest difference for me is back where I just said, and that is the attachment of certain of these uh, ideas to a sort of personality. Uh, whether it is you know old man language or you know body of sin language that Paul uses, uh, I think that's the the bigger difference. So when people use purification language um, alone or apart from, say, old man language, um, I think there's actually less emphasis on an idea that God will substantially change my personality when he mm-hmm. uh, purifies my heart by faith you know, with the Holy Spirit. Um, that's, I think there's a, more of a sense of preparation 
like the Holy Spirit preparing a vessel to be filled so that it's, you know, it's, it's not contaminated. It's, it's been cleaned. It's been washed and it's more preparation uh, focused than personality focused, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. One of the, one of the things that I, uh, and I just looked up eradication in Merriam-Webster and it's interesting. The number one definition is to do away with as completely as if by pulling up by the roots. So actually, uh, the root of sin being removed and eradication are almost identical. Eradication is doubles down on that particular metaphor, not just the word removed, but you know, that, that really that particular sense. But uh, then I looked up, I looked up the word purify and the second definition is to free from guilt or moral or ceremonial blemish. And this is what I was thinking that sometimes metaphors work their way into our language until we don't even realize they are metaphors anymore. Right. Uh, and, and so some of the words that we use in daily speech, we don't think about ourselves as using a metaphor, but they're just so ingrained in our speech patterns that basically a metaphor has taken on a definition of itself. Um, so I think it's maybe a little bit like that. Cleansing and and purification language, unlike eradication language, is so prevalent in the realm of morality and ethics that it tends to evoke uh, a moral response or or a, a way of thinking about a moral change, which is not necessarily substantial. Whereas eradication is more mechanistic. Like you got to get that old sin nature burned out. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to get that removed, taken out. People tend to think about it like an operation, like a surgical mechanistic thing that's happening to me or my personality or within me. I think cleansing and purification although you, it's it's in the substance family uh so metaf- you know family of substance metaphors it does tend to have more moral um more vaguely or broadly moral implications is that making sense Tal- i've been thinking about yeah, it recently. yeah yeah so let me i think i'm getting there yeah let me mention this to um you know, to the audience, because there may be someone out there who's still trying to understand, okay, what, what do you mean by substance metaphor? Like what, what counts as a substance? Uh, so let me illustrate this way. Now, well, first of all, we've been saying, you know, substance is like a thing, like a physical object that needs removed, like something that has been ingested and has to be taken out. Like that's, it has substantial, you know, it's a substance. So it's actually, this is very interesting. The more left, uh, more liberal theology historically in the 20th century has tended more toward a substance uh, metaphor or understanding. So much so that to your point where the metaphor becomes more than that, uh, there there are theologians who identify sin as nothing more than a problem of DNA. That there, it's it, that salvation, therefore, really is just a matter of scientifically improving the human, you know, genome somehow. Um, <laughs> you know, that's obviously way out, you know, far from from you know Orthodox Christianity. But there are those explanations out there among theologians, and that's pretty extreme in an understanding that sin is a substance. It is uh, something that actually is attached a, a disease like a virus or a bacteria or something that uh, attaches itself to the human body. Uh, a totally physical thing. All right. That's extreme. What happens in more conservative presentations is we kind of do the same thing, except we just kind of spiritualize it a bit. And that makes it even a little bit more nebulous as to what the thing is, <laughs> as to what sin is, uh, that needs to be removed. Right. Uh, so uh, let's say this about rooted language. Um, and that was interesting, Your the definition there you found on eradication. But let's say this, that part of the function of the substance metaphor, particularly in the uh, rootedness category, is to tell us, to communicate to us that Sin is more than a surface condition. That there is more to sin than what may be apparent on the surface. 
that's that's the point. That's that's the point of uh, well, one of the points. There actually are some other points, uh, but that's one. Uh, the other, another point is that uh, there is, and I'm, I'm going to use imagery here. So uh, the idea of say like the root of bitterness, uh, the idea of root, something being rooted is that it's, it is uh, something that's rooted is not easily, uh, it's not easily uh, pulled out, pulled away, changed, influenced, right? Um, even when the surface uh, may seem uh, damaged, uh, there there is a stability to it. And so that can be good or bad, right? That can be good or bad. So part of the function of the metaphor is to speak to the persistence, uh, this persistent now, if I'm, this is another word we need to talk about, but the persistent nature of something uh, mm-hmm. that's uh, or, or characteristic of something um, uh, that's, I think that's part of that metaphor as well, which is important. And we have to work through, okay, what's that mean theologically then? And what way is sin uh, below the surface and what way is sin something that is persistent and and there may be other uh, nuances to that language as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of um, some of the ways that I've heard some of these uh, terms used. V- very interesting point uh, that liberal theologians maybe have tended towards more um, substantial language. Curious to explore that idea more. But um, it, it is, I think, unfortunate that some people tend to have a favorite uh, uh, metaphor that they politicize or they impress upon others. And um, I've thought a lot about this, and I, I want to be very careful as so I'm talking slowly. I'm trying to think through how to say this. Um, I think those people uh, can be who are who are very who have politicized certain metaphors, who insist on people using certain metaphors, are often. Um, there's a, there's a mixture of things going on there. It could be that they're just zealots who are a little bit confused themselves, pretty controlling, maybe a little paranoid, more concerned that someone else is used that someone else uses their favorite metaphor or, you know, than really that they teach the essence of the doctrine. But it could also be that that person is afraid that if we lose that metaphor, we're going to lose something important that is contained in that metaphor, but they are not personally equipped to actually explain what that is. That's been my experience. So my challenge, I think, to people who are caught up in this kind of political debate within, you know, Wesleyanism, but more narrowly within Holiness Movement and the CHM, is that if you are extremely zealous about a particular metaphor, it, the burden lies upon you to explain exactly how you're using that and to show how the person who's reject not using that metaphor is actually rejecting that that point, right? You can't just, you know, stay over in your kind of fuzzy land where you say, well, we've always used eradication and well, I'm not giving it up now. That's not good enough. But then on the other side, I think this is a challenge to me because sometimes I've gotten really frustrated about that kind of rhetoric. Um, I also need to make sure that I am being generous and fair to those people, uh, making sure, first of all, I don't swing the pendulum um, too far the other direction. Make sure that I understand what it is they maybe are trying to preserve, to sniff out the the truth, right? So that's what I'm trying to do. There's what I want to say. I think what I want to do when I hear somebody uh, use, you know, using a metaphor that has some tradition behind it, I want to sniff out the truth there because there is a danger that if I just wholesale reject these metaphors because of the way they've been misused, I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and not incorporate some really important points into my own theological formulation. So personally, I don't use eradication language typically in my teaching and preaching of entire sanctification. I'm not opposed to it. I might in the future. 
Um, but that's because I don't feel like the people to whom I've ministered are ready to work with that kind of language. And I personally think there's better ways of speaking. And, uh, and I don't see, you know, that language having the kind of long mm-hmm. tradition that other language like cleansing or purification does. So anyway, uh, I'm not sure how well I articulated that, but I really do want to see some of the inflammatory rhetoric die down. Uh, but I also think we need to work towards mutual, mutual understanding because uh, when I step back and look at some of the people who are viewed as being on, you know, side A or side B of a debate, they're often actually quite similar in what it is that they're saying. Mm-hmm. And the more I've studied entire sanctification, uh, the more I've actually become actually pretty open to some of the metaphors that initially I thought were were really, you know, just needed to be gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, and uh, I think it's a good reminder for people who. Uh, have been hurt, even traumatized with certain presentations of the doctrine of holiness. And I often refer to uh, doctrines of holiness because there are many out there and what they do, uh, how those doctrines impact and how they function in a person's life. And really in, in this episode, and we'll follow up with a conversation, a separate episode with the, a, a different metaphor uh, that's often used, um, but on this one, this this is a this is probably the m- least understood metaphor, the substance metaphor, and uh, and I, I think I want to first of all impress upon people that this is a metaphor that is used heavily in scripture, frequently in scripture. And I also want to say that it is very poetic language, and poetry is notoriously difficult to understand. Um, it is imaginative, creative, poetic sort of language uh, that we probably shouldn't begin with in our descriptions of, uh, you know, a doctrine of holiness. Uh, this is this is where it does get a little bit more complicated. So. Uh, again, it all all comes back to our theological imagination, what we have the ability to understand and to imagine, uh, to to take language and understand its its highly uh, uh, high image and its function. Uh, so we want to press people on that, even beyond the doctrine of holiness, just in our understanding of scripture altogether, uh, to to try to recover some of that. Uh, lost, lost understanding. Yes. I love that. Start with light and then move towards Mm -hmm. heat. You know, start with clarity, clear explanations, clear systematic teaching. Um, There's some guys who just stop there. They don't illustrate. They don't give word pictures. They don't touch the, reach the affections. And somebody might have a mechanistic understanding of, of, you know, a a doctrine they might have a precise you know, philosophical explanation for a doctrine, but they've never been touched by, by it. There's other people who just get up and just, they just, they have a lot of fire, but kind of like a flamethrower, yeah. right? And, and you burn a lot of things down sure. that way. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of oomph and there's, you know, you might get up on the piano, you know, you might shout, you know, you might burn down a place with your preaching, um, but there's not a lot of clarity or light. And, and that's really damaging. Right. Um, but I think there needs to be that that balance um, between light and heat, and I do think primacy needs to be given to yes. clarity. Um, but then that, what I found is, like you said, clarity allows you more liberty in using these metaphors in ways that touch the affections, because God is after intellect affections. You know, we talked about this with Prevenient Grace and William Burt Pope's understanding, like the will. Mm-hmm. The, the three major faculties of man, intellect, affections, and will. The will, which is what we're after in preaching in many ways, right? We're trying to, you know, with the will to submit and to, to, to not to resist God's grace. Well, how do you get to the will through the intellect and affections? Start with clarity of mind, and then you open yourself up now to really reach through the intellect to the heart, through light and clarity to the affections and now to drive home some of these points, perhaps with some substance metaphors, perhaps, and, and, but you've, you've made sure by your clear formulation of the doctrine that somebody's not going to walk away with the, the kind of common misconceptions that exist. Right. And, right, uh, and I think right. that's, that's the path. Right. Forward. It is. And so let, let me, I give this final comment 
on my part, <laughs> there are some clear, simple truths that can help us keep from misunderstanding the more complicated truths. One of those is this, that uh, going back to removal language, uh, our ability to sin, our capability to sin is not removed. It is not removed, uh, our capability, uh, because that was given to us as part of who we are as creatures, um, free creatures. And so if we, this that simple point can help correct a lot of mishearing, maybe misuse of certain language. If we keep that very, very clear. There's some other simple truths, and we'll go over those. Uh, th- there are some other metaphors that we we want to spend some time on, but uh, they need you know 45 minutes or an hour on the, their own. You know what? What I love that you just brought that in, and if you are just coming to mind, why don't we just maybe we could just close with a few more of those. What, what would be other some other just points that everyone needs to know? Your ability to sin is not taken away. However, you use you know you need to make sure that's clear when you use these metaphors. Another thing is that you never achieve a state of grace where you don't need to continue to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Um, temptation will never lose any allure. You know, it's never going to be, a, there's never a point where temptation has no allure to you. Otherwise, it wouldn't be temptation. Temptation entails that thing being intrinsically sure. alluring or enticing. Sure. Just like my Reese's cup uh, or my, well, I don't know what it is, Reese's bar that's laying on my desk behind me. It's only tempting because it's intrinsically alluring to me and that's never going to change. So so what, what would be some other key points that you, because those are those a few are that I ones. keep coming back to and repeating. Yeah, th- those are yeah. the big ones. Uh, the, other, the other big one, which we're going to have to have a long discussion on this one because it, it has to have some qualification or it has to have some discussion. Uh, but the other big one is that sin itself, that a, so I, I said earlier uh, that entire sanctification does not remove the ability to sin. So let's go another step beyond that and say that uh, entire sanctification is not a guarantee that a believer will never sin. So that's another step. That's something a little bit different than saying we don't, you know, we have the ability to sin. But some a person may come back and say, "Well, we have the ability, but you never will." And I want to say, uh, "Well, no, that's not that's not actually true. Um, that there that uh, there is an understanding uh, in New Testament, uh, well, in biblical teaching of holiness that uh, Old Testament, New Testament that uh, there are people within the covenant community who do fall into sin and uh, that there is provision made uh, for that, for those who uh, continue to pursue holiness, uh, per- pursue a, a holy fellowship with, with God. Um, and so that, that's important to understand. Again, we, there's, there's a lot of explanation for some people who may have, been involved in those sorts of conversations before perhaps they understand uh, the theology of that for others it may be the first time that they're hearing that uh, because they have always thought that uh, no if you sin you are automatically instantly removed from fellowship holy fellowship with god Uh, and i want to say that that's not necessarily so thank you for listening to the holy joys podcast Email your questions to podcast at holyjoys.org and they may be featured on a future episode. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.